You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. I saw her standing on her front lawn, just a twirling her baton. Me and her went for a ride, and people there from the town of Lincoln, Nebraska, with a sawed-off Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm your host for today. Joining me are two, count them two, assistant professors of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore and Danny Anderson, doctors both. How's it going, guys? <laughs> well, I'm doing okay. doctoral. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys forget that you have a doctorate? It, it, it's never in the front of my mind. Let me put it that way. Yes, I, uh, I, I, uh, I make reservations with it and stuff because I think it might it, it might get me better seats at restaurants. So. <laughs> they might think I'm a physician. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got young kids, so we don't make so many reservations. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Does any place in Georgia take reservations? Is my question. <laughs> oh yeah, there's places in Athens. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was joking. I know. Oh god. Well. <laughs> Sorry, Jerk. <laughs> let me tell you though the informality of georgia is nothing compared to the informality of minnesota which is i mean georgia at least has this like southern gentleman tradition that, that there's some ceremony in that state there's no ceremony in minnesota you go to the symphony and people are wearing jeans oh wow yeah Anyway, uh, we do not have any listener feedback today if you'd like to rectify that for next week our email address is the christian humanist at gmail.com so instead, we're just going to talk uh, right away about our subject, which is the Willa Cather story, Neighbor Rosicki, which uh, by the time this post should have been on Facebook for a week and a half. So you should you should be able to read that if you want. If not, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. We do suggest you read it before listening to this if you haven't read it already, because we are going to spoil it because it's not <laughs> much good talking about it for an hour if you don't. Uh, normally I throw historical questions to Nathan, but I know that he would never forgive me if I did it this time. <laughs> so, uh, Danny, what can you tell us about the way that neighbor Rosicki is situated within Willa Cather's larger body of work? Um, well, you know, one thing that stood out to me in reading it is that it has this sort of, um, uh, idea, idealization of sort of not only immigrant life, which she was very interested in, but also a uh, tradition. There's sort of a, a suspicion of modernity and, and that sort of thing going on in this story. Um, and there's also a kind of, I don't know, this is my own sort of take on it, but sort of a, a quaintness to it. There's, there's a very kind of um, within, I guess it's part of this idealization that you see in it. The, this quaintness is what partly got her in trouble with critics. Uh, in, in the thirties, she sort of fell out of favor because she wasn't um, apparently uh, she didn't have her eye on the realities of the social realities of, of the day. And so a lot of critics sort of dismissed her work as being sort of uh, dreamlike and, and, and too idealistic. And so for many, many years, she was sort of a, a forgotten figure in literature, um, sadly. And, and I think that um, uh, what I'm 
reminded of is when Lionel Trilling is is doing his famous comparison of uh, Henry James and and Dreiser and and their uh, uh, individual receptions by kind of uh, early twentieth uh, century liberalism and and I feel like she in some ways suffers the same fate as James uh, as being you know ascetic or whatever ascetic ascetic Wh- whom she like. whom she adored right yes she loved Henry James that's right um, and uh, and you see sort of uh, like this story falling into that. I mean, there's a very much, you don't get a, a sense of any kind of uh, social problem in, in the poverty with which Rosicki and his family lives in. Uh, this is sort of almost uh, like flies in the face of, of, of like politically agenda, uh, pl- politically motivated readers. Uh, and so like, I, I feel like it kind of fits in the scope of her career in that way and which possibly makes it more interesting. Uh, it certainly makes it more interesting to me, uh, than if she had gone down the sort of overtly political road. And so. Have you read, um, well, just, I guess, tell me what other, what other Catherine you're familiar with. You know, not much. Only uh, uh, I've, you know, I have a, a special interest in campus narratives, and so I, I've sort of a, a while ago looked at the professor's house and, and read that. And so, um, and there are similar sorts of uh, concerns in that. I, I know that there's a a suspicion of uh, uh, materialism uh, and its sort of binding effects on people, and and uh, and there's a kind of uh, this kind of so a uh, kind of critique of modernity and that sort of thing. A life, so it, an interest in the life of the soul instead of the life of the, oh, I don't know. The the, ec- the economic life, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, it's it's definitely consistent, I think, in in, in regards to her uh, larger kind of artistic concerns. It's interesting to me, this is a, a late story. It's not, I think it's the last decade of her life. It's her. It's her last one that is still heavily anthologized. This is in the Norton... Anthology of American Lit, for example. I think she has another novel after it, which I haven't read. But I think it's very interesting if you compare it to her first book of short stories, and especially the story, A Wagner Matinee, I think it's called. It may be called A Matinee of Wagner, which mm. is very, very down on small-town uh, small Nebraskan life. The, the Rosickis in this story, who are the noble characters, would be just the sort of people who would be looked down on in A Wagner Matinee. Hmm. Um, so, so she seems to, she seems to have undergone some sort of conversion, you know, as a lot of people do as they get older toward the life she led when she was young, which she maybe didn't appreciate then. And, and what's interesting to me is this, this obviously happens after she moves away from Nebraska because she only lives in Nebraska, um, until I think she's early twenties when she moves away and, and she lives the last four decades of her life in New York city, which is where she writes this story, believe it or not. Right. Hmm. It, it do, but it does have that sort of sense, that nostalgic sense to it, uh-huh. right. That almost seems only possible from that kind of uh, physical distance that she now sort of undertakes. Right. It ends up being, I, I used the term last week, uh, an Arizona of the mind. You kind of get a Nebraska of the mind here, or at least a, a Nebraska of memory. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Nathan, did you have anything to add to that? Are you familiar with any other Cather? No, honestly, this is the first Cather I've ever read, uh, so I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's 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 funny um, if, if you teach the uh, Norton chronologically, and I, I think they have Paul's case probably is the other one they have in there. But um, you know, there's another one from the, her first co- uh, collection about a painter's funeral. It's also very down on small town Nebraska life. But if if you if you 
if you teach the uh, Norton chronologically, you end up doing this story, which is from the 30s, you end up doing it way at the beginning of modernism because it's so late in her career, and she lives a pretty long time and writes an awful lot. I mean, she has just decades and decades of work, um, including in, in, including some of the novels that I think a lot of people would consider some of the best ever written, My Antonia, uh, The Song of the Lark. The Professor's House, which uh, Danny mentioned, and which I think a lot of people forget about, which is excellent. And then what I think is her greatest novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop, which is uh, late twenties, and, and it, it it also it, it also shares this this story's concern with like work and and quiet spiritual progress in the midst of poverty basically but the the poverty is not exactly an evil as you were saying this isn't steinbeck mm-hmm. right and and that's sort of like it takes that turn is when she starts falling out of favor and, and was sadly i mean i think lost uh from what i understand for much of the 20th century and not it's not really until the rise of theory and and with questions about her sexuality when when sort of queer theorists start revisiting her her work that she really becomes kind of a, a figure again uh, of, of interest. And I think that's, that's really too bad because it's really great fiction in the same way that we were gloating over Alice or Monroe's fiction uh, in an earlier episode. I mean, I see a lot of similar similarities uh, in, in this story. I, I do too. And I, as I said, I mean, I, my, my master's is from the university of Nebraska at Omaha. So you might imagine I have read some, I, I had to read some Cather <laughs> and, and I, I, when I was 22, I, hated it it was just it's so um it's so slow and quiet and everything is very much below the surface but as i as i have aged i have found myself returning to her again and again and just seeing her as an absolute master at at emotional nuance uh in a way that i don't think i could have appreciated when i was younger Mm -hmm. so i guess the moral of the story is if you've read catherine before and didn't think you like her uh, you may return to her and 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 see if something in you has changed. If if you are more ready to appreciate her, I you know, and I think that's something that is widely applicable. Like not just for for Willa Cather. I feel like I find myself as I'm getting older reading things again that I, I never really had a taste for, and, and suddenly because I uh, have this additional experience or, or whatever that uh, it means something all of a sudden. And I think it, it's it, it was a it's a good lesson to keep in mind. That might uh, that would be another good episode. I think is is authors we've changed our mind on, mm. one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But that'll have to wait for a different time. <laughs> um, from the opening paragraphs of this story, Neighbor Grosicki, Cather sets up this conflict between old ways of life and new ones. Um, Rosicki, I think it's pretty obvious, stands in for this more traditional lifestyle, but he finds himself in a world that he increasingly has trouble understanding. Nathan, how, how does Cather go on to develop that theme throughout the rest of the story, and do you find anything interest, interesting about her treatment of it? Well, yeah, one of the central relationships of the story is between uh, both an immigrant and you know someone who is more Anglo-Saxon in, in ancestry – uh, but then also someone who is older and someone who is younger. And so Rosicki is the old uh, Czech immigrant. Uh, Polly is the, you know, more Anglo younger woman, his daughter-in-law. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where Rosicki is always worried. And Michael's absolutely right. It's, all, it's always just below the surface. Um, but you sort of see him fretting about 
the possibility that she won't approve of their sort of old Eastern European, old world ways. Uh, he always goes out of his way to, you know, do whatever favors he can to his son Rudolph and for Polly, his his wife. Uh, and, you know, among the, I guess, central, you know, images in the story that sort of exemplify this is the the notion of going into town. So the young, the younger generation of the Rosickies are always wanting to pile in the car, go into town, see the picture shows. Uh, old man Rosicki, I mean, doesn't have a whole lot of interest in that. But when it looks like uh, Rudolph and Polly might be having some problems together, uh, he is very fast to make sure that they have the automobile uh, that the family sort of shares so that they can go into town so that Polly can remain content. So it's one of those things that, you know, Rosicki's central character trait, his sort of self-giving, is always in the context of that anxiety, too, about you know, is the old way of life ultimately going to be able to hold the marriage of his son together? Uh, Danny, where else do you see that dynamic working in this story? Well, I, I feel like, you know, one of the things that I always tell my students, uh, in particularly bad moments, I tell my students that uh, <laughs> interested people are interesting people. And so uh, if if you actually want to be sort of someone respected you have to sort of show that to other people and and i feel like uh rosicki is, is sort of almost the image of that of that phrase because he has a way there's this sort of uh dichotomy between his way of life and, and more modern ways of life but it isn't contentious it's he has like this almost preternatural ability to empathize right. with whoever's in front of him. Right. And I feel like, uh, like in that way, he sort of almost, uh, can just like slip out of his own skin and into theirs and, and find some sort of connection. And so he, he does this, whether he's in the city, he does this when he's in the country, he does it across classes. And, and mm. I feel like there, there is a, 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 a slippery way, a slipperiness to him that he, uh, is able to sort of command respect in spite of this sort of uh, weird, uh, uh, not weird, but this uh, these class differences and in this sort of uh, difference in modernity and tradition, basically. Um, I, I don't know, uh, Michael, if you have more to add to that. Yeah, there's no antagonist in the story, which is yeah. exactly what I hated about Cather when I was 22, because, you know, I wanted <laughs> I, I wanted some sort of conflict, and there is no conflict, there's just tension. Right, right. And, exactly. and even even there, the tension is not unpleasant. You know, the, the tension is is Rosicki gets diagnosed with a heart condition and he's told he can't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we'll get to that in a minute. But it, it means, among other things, that he gets to spend more time with his wife. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's such a gentle, quiet story. I just I just I, I just love it. Uh but the sort of binaries, though, that the story sets up about country and city, which we'll talk about, and, and sort of upper class and, and lower classes and, and that sort of thing, none of them are, are hard lines. Right. And, and they all sort of depend on Rosicki's ability or one's ability to, uh, like, empathize with someone on the other side of that divide. And so when he's told that he can't work on the farm anymore and, and he needs to do things around the kitchen, like, his initial thought is something like, well, that's my wife's job, right? I don't want to, like, take her job. But yet he steps right into that when someone uh, requires it, when he steps in for Polly so she can go out to the movies with her husband, right? Uh, and so mm -hmm. this is a sense of him always sort of putting himself – 
aside, uh, whatever position he takes in the, in these binaries, he puts it aside to enter into the other person's experience. He's he's one of the most like lovely characters like in literature. I think I don't, I, there's just not a bad thing to say about the man. And stuff. In some ways, it's a story about transcending binaries, but that doesn't happen any of the normal ways that you see that happening in literature. Right. Because because there's no violent conflict between binaries. It's it's very much like. He rec- it's not even that he, re- he doesn't think the binaries exist. It's like he's comfortable with both sides and can handle it just fine. And, and I think that this is implicit in the name of the story. I mean, he is identified as a neighbor, someone who is necessarily in relationship with other people. Like that's part of his, his, his identity uh, is, 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 as, as part of a group. And, and so he finds ways to make that group cohere. And I think that it's just it's a beautiful thing. Well, uh, a related binary here is between the city and the country, which is, of course, a traditional divide in American literature. And, of course, we we actually did a whole episode about this, I think, two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But Cather really complicates, as we've been saying, that that simple binary. What does she have to tell us about the way people relate to urbanity and rurality, Uh, Danny? Well, uh, so my reading of this, like, I, I don't see the city as in itself uh, a bad thing. He says at one point, if I'm remembering right, that if you have lots of money, the city's great. If you're poor, it's not. Uh, and so <laughs> there's, there's some sort of like relativism going on in, in his definition of, of the city. So for me, his fear of the city and not his fear, his, his, the way, the reason he gradually turns away from the city, he goes from, uh, Czechoslovakia to, I believe London to New York. And he keeps making this sort of, uh, further westward move, sort of the American ideal in a lot of ways. And which mm-hmm. part, part of, uh, Cather's like idealization of the immigrant. I think that she sees them as the almost ultimate American in that way. And right. so, um, and I think that, uh, his, relationship or the uh, distinction he makes between the city and the country is more based on the economic structures of those places. And so to live in a city means to not own your own plot of land. And so in order to survive, you must be a wage earner. And this, um, this idea of even though you may be experiencing wealth, uh, you're sort of cutting yourself off from autonomy in, in that way. And so uh, I feel like his, uh, his fear about his son, Rudolph, going to the city is that he won't have a place to call his own like to like be in control of his own uh uh like destiny which is sort of ever closer to a, like a, a a natural ideal uh so so nature is sort of equated with this this kind of ideal this this natural ideal to uh achieve and so ultimately he makes this life uh, this life journey from birth to death moving ever so closely to this pasture graveyard where where he will ultimately be um uh, rested and, and so i feel like it isn't so much that the city is dirty or the city is bad it's that the city is removed from an or ideal uh, natural state, which is not unrelated to the economic structures that he identifies. Well, and, and Rudolph, his son, wants to go not to New York. He wants to go to Omaha, mm. uh, which is funny if you know anything about Omaha in the early 20th century. It's, it's hardly, a, hardly a flashy city now, and, even, and then it must have been nothing at all. But he wants to work in the slaughterhouses, and so you think of it as him moving from life into death Mm-hmm. Right. He he moves from growing things out of the ground and bringing life into the world into ending the lives of other things in a factory owned by somebody else uh, for almost no money. 
and a guaranteed job in some ways, but no, no real life affirming soul creating, uh, work to be had there. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and honestly, Michael, I, and you know, you guys, I mean, seem to enjoy this a lot more about Cather than I do. I, I see that sort of, you know, I don't know. I see a kind of flippancy about, uh, agricultural poverty there. It's like, Oh yeah, you know, some years there wasn't any crop and you know, they 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 were they were kind of struggling there, but you know, the next year they had more and it was okay and and, and I think part of that is the fact that Rosicky is such a sort of center of gravity here. Uh but I'll admit I I, I was you know I I guess I was dubious about the, you know, the whole well, you know, agricultural poverty, you know, if the cold wipes out your crop, no big deal, you just come back next year. And that's the complaint, though, that people had from her had of her initially. You're exactly right. Oh, sure, that. sure. And I, and you know, I, I'm I'm still not convinced the contrary. Well, and I mean, <laughs> it's it's worth pointing out this is not a life she chose for herself, right? I mean, she she walked out of Nebraska. She she didn't. I mean, my understanding is she would not have been particularly interested in getting married to a man at all. But mm-hmm. she she did not get married and become a farmer's wife and and tie herself to the land. She lived in an apartment in I think Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, yeah, I, I think I think you're right to point out that hypocrisy. But I I do think she makes the life of the farmer look precarious when it needs to. I think in the descriptions of of Rudolph and Polly, I think you see what what life in the country must look like to someone who is not Rosicky. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, and I, and I guess I should have phrased it that way. I mean, I think Rosicky's notion of the idealized farm life. Uh, is what, you know, doesn't strike me as adequate. I think you're right. In the course of the narrative, more broadly, uh, there is definitely something lurking on the edges that, you know, uh, any hard winter could do you in. Or hot summer. I mean, you have to worry about both of them. Right, right. right. Uh, you know, and as you say this, you're exactly right, I think, Nathan. And I feel like it it kind of reveals a limitation of of memory and in a sense mm-hmm. it, it does feel like cather is overly nostalgic uh to a degree that it's 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 somewhat false on on that level that you're you're describing and i feel like that makes me it reminds me of sort of it makes me question all of our own sort of nostalgias that we have for for these distant pasts right, that we right. we, kind of, we tend to always elide the negative parts when we're away right. from them. But Michael also makes a valid point that within the story itself, if we're doing the close reading game, uh, you know there are pointers to a much more uh, menacing side to the life of the farm. I want to read, before we move on, I want to read her description of the city that makes Rosicky finally leave New York and come to Nebraska. Because he's happy Mm -hmm. in New York, but he he feels this kind of restlessness. Yeah. It says, Rosicky, the old Rosicky, could remember as if it were yesterday the day when the young Rosicky found out what was the matter with him. It was on a 4th of July afternoon, and he was sitting in Park Place in the sun. The lower part of New York was empty. Wall Street, Liberty Street, Broadway, all empty. So much stone and asphalt with nothing going on. So many empty windows. The emptiness was intense, like the stillness in a great factory when the machinery stops and the belts and bands cease running. It was too great a change. It took all the strength out of one. 
Those blank buildings without the stream of life pouring through them were like empty jails. It struck young Rosicki that this was the trouble with big cities. They built you in from the earth itself, cemented you away from any contact with the ground. You lived in an unnatural world, like a fish in an aquarium, who were probably much more comfortable than they ever were in the sea. So, I mean, you have this image of the city that is, I mean, the reason people like cities at least I take to be the reason people like cities, is because they like this energy that flows through them. But what happens on a day when that energy is stripped away? What happens when the city is essentially closed for business, as it is in this paragraph, and as it probably never is any day now? Right? I guess, right, I guess right. maybe after the hurricane a couple of years ago. It may have been it may have been closed for business like that, but for the most part, on the Fourth of July in New York City today, you would not see anything like this. You would, right, you would see right. lots of people out doing stuff. So it seems to me like Rosicki takes his energy from other people. He's he's just a, a, mm. an almost wholly relational being, and and so the the city sustains him through his youth for that. But as he gets older he begins to need something else and instead he begins to take energy from the earth um instead of from the from the the people in the city mm -hmm. and and the idea of uh of comfort or the fish being more comfortable than it would be in the ocean but it's still somehow separated from nature i feel like that he's that explains the trade-off that you guys are talking about with the uh, taking the bad times uh, being a farmer uh, and 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 reducing the severity of that narratively uh, sort of uh, emphasizes the 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 beauty of living among na nature uh, and so I feel like in some ways narratively that that's consistent with uh, Rosicki's um, willingness to put up with drought and and, and famine <laughs> on occasion mm -hmm. because it's it's somehow honest. Yeah. I don't know. I'd still rather live in New York, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, among the values traditionally associated with rural areas is hard work and the willingness to put in as much as possible to get the job done. We will skirt the question of whether that is a value you should actually associate with rural areas or not with urban areas. But um, there's, <laughs> there's no doubt it's also a traditionally American virtue going all the way back to Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Um, neighbor Rosicki also, I think, has a great deal to say about work. Am I am I wrong, Nathan? Oh no, you're right. And and one of the things that I found interesting about it is that one of the things that Rosicki excels at is, and, and I'll leave it to you guys since you're the American lit folks uh, to to qualify this and complicate this after I say it. But something that you know, for instance, in you know the old cowboy novels. Uh, one thinks of as women's work, which is to say tailoring, sewing, so on and so forth. Uh, Rosicki is certainly capable of working with livestock and crops and such, uh, but especially after he's diagnosed with his heart condition, the first thing that he thinks of is his days back in uh, London first and then New York, uh, the fact that he acquired some skill mending clothes. Now, of course, even living in Nebraska, uh, the narrative says over and over again that he puts the patches on his own clothes. Uh, he is always working with a needle. Uh, so it, it, it's an interesting blend, really. Uh, and going back to that city-country divide, uh, one detail that I, that I neglected when I first answered is the fact that Rosicki is, uh, on one hand, a figure of the country, but then he's also, in his pairing with his younger wife, 
decidedly the urban one. Right. Uh, he comes from New York and London. She has always been a farm girl. The narrator describes Rosicki as having a sort of quietness to him as opposed to his wife's, you know, sort of loud, boisterous country ways. Uh, describes his hands as being very dexterous and very skilled uh, as opposed to the, you know, giant mallets, um, you know, that the fists of a lot of farmers tend to become. Uh or on the other hand, you know, the sort of bony farmer's hands, if you've known a lot of farmers, both of those descriptions uh, are just spot on. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, the the idea that Rosicki is always a worker is certainly true, but he is a worker that can operate in a lot of contexts. He can be, he can sew his own clothes and he can tend to the crops. He can do city work and he can do country work. Uh, and again, it's one of those things where, uh, what you guys were talking earlier, talking about earlier in terms of relationships, it plays out here in terms of work. He is capable, not just in a narrow range of context, but in a broad range. And so once again, he becomes, in a very straightforward sense, sort of an everyman figure uh, when it comes to hard work. And of course, uh, as we've been sort of leaning into this whole time, uh, it's ultimately his refusal to stop doing hard work. Uh, that ends the story for him, and we'll get to that here in a w little while, but uh, it runs all the way through the story. Uh, Danny, am I missing any big work bits? Well, no, no, well, no I think you're right, and I think uh, dovetailing off of that a bit, uh, the the range of work that he is able to do, I, I mm -hmm. think to, this is, uh, I think is part of what leads uh, Cather's work to being sort of amenable to various queer readings late, later on. And just to do a sort of very, you know, naive and basic one, the, his willingness to sew and take on women's work kind of disturbs the, the natural order of the distinction between men and women. And so you can see where people would sort of make that kind of reading about the story. But I think that another thing that is disturbed by uh, Rosicki's work that he does is the fact that it isn't for the accumulation of wealth. Uh, and so it is for just sort of uh, persistence. And, and, and I think there's a one passage I want to sort of read uh, when the doctor is sort of reflecting on the doctor who tr clearly admires and loves the Rosicki family. Uh, and he's sort of reflecting mm -hmm. on them. Uh, sometimes the doctor heard the gossipers in the drugstore wondering why Rosicki didn't get on faster. He was industrious and so were his boys, but they were rather free and easy, weren't pushers, and they didn't always show good judgment. They were comfortable, they were out of debt, but they didn't get much ahead. Maybe, Dr. Burley reflected, people as generous and warm-hearted and affectionate as the Rosickis never got ahead much. Maybe you couldn't enjoy your life and put it in the bank, too. Uh, and and I, I just think that's a utterly lovely <laughs> sentiment. Right. It's and, and it's something that... Uh, doesn't diminish the idea of work, but it just sort of detaches it from the idea of, of personal wealth. And, and so work mm -hmm. is for something uh, to the Rosickis that's higher than, than just sort of personal wealth. And, 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 and there's no bitterness about the fact that other people have gotten more than them. Like there's a scene early on in the story when Rosicki goes and looks at, I think it's a prize bull of a family that owns this, very prosperous patch of land that for various reasons he could have gotten but didn't. And you think when you first read the story, oh, we're going to hear about his hard luck story and how 
bitter he is and how this should have been him, but there's none of that. He, he, he's like capable of watching other people succeed and being pleased for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a neighbor would. Right. Right. The yeah. other thing I wanted to point out about work is it's somehow like part of who he is. The story hinges on whether he'll stop working or not, but you should know early on he won't because Cather describes his mustache as a hairbrush <laughs> coming down over his mouth. Mm-hmm. It, it, and and you know he the reason he dies is because he's he's shoveling hay for for Polly and Rudolph and and so I mean it makes sense it, it it she she has foreshadowed it she's she's told you from almost the very beginning of the story there's no way this guy is ever going to stop yeah walking. yeah and nor should he it makes him happy it's what he it, it's what he's there to do and and you understand this better after you see what he does in the city yeah. And there's a, a sense that he knows himself that he's been given a, a very sort of finite period of time because he can't stop working. And so that much of the story uh, the, that takes place in the sort of uh, time period of his life, of, his, of the end of his life, is um, him sort of looking at, at landscapes and just sort of appreciating beauty. It's almost like he's taking stock with the, the knowledge that he soon will be sort of um, dying because he knows he can't follow the doctor's advice. He's banking that instead of the money. Yes. Oh, wow. That's very nice. Yes. Well, I find this story almost extraordinarily moving, and I'll explain why that is here in a few minutes. I have some autobiographical reasons. But first, Danny, I'd like you to talk about the role that love plays in the story and the various social evils that Cather sets it up to combat. Uh, what does she have to tell us about what love is and how we encounter it or how it encounters us, depending on how you want to think about it? Well, I, some of this we've gotten to, but I feel like love in this story is experiencing life with people in, in an unmediated way, something that's natural, something that isn't dependent on any sort of uh, human uh, systems of economics or anything like that. It's just sort of doing things for people strictly because you feel for them in this empathetic way. And, and I, I mentioned before that the, he is named neighbor Rosicki in this story. I mean, he is someone who is defined by his relationships with others. And, and so I feel like um, this implies that his identity is found in community uh, with other people. And this is the love that he uh, uh, shares with everybody is, is the main maintenance of that community. And you can call it a maintenance of tradition. You can call it sort of an overly nostalgic the past, but uh, he sees love in both his urban and rural settings, mind you, as an antidote to the problems of modernity in general. And so uh, like modernity for him is not something is bad where it, where it separates other people. Like you mentioned before, Michael, where he, he leaves New York at the moment when people are gone from the city. Like that, that's a, it's a telling moment. And it's uh, also on the 4th of July, which makes yeah. it a very, uh, a very American sort of uh, reference. A little, little too on the nose there, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> a little ham-fisted perhaps there. But, um, but, uh, but uh, th- this uh, sort of – the problems of modernity are the sort of fragmentation of human beings for, 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 
for Rosicki in this story. And that becomes associated with the city, not because there's anything bad about buildings, but it's just sort of a natural function of, of economic and, and architectural uh, structures there. And so getting back to the nature where there are just sort of fields running into each other. And you see scenes where they, he crosses a number of fields. And so you, he's like crossing over other people's land and that sort of thing. And, and so uh, the another thing that he's trying to solve with this love is sort of the loss of purpose uh, in life that people have when you're working in a a slaughtering house. You're just doing it for money at that point. And it's not for the maintenance of the land that you own. Right. And, and and also the loss of family. If Rudolph is to go all the way to Omaha, that is a a, a separation uh, that's uh, would be tragic for this family that we see them eating dinner together, all just thoroughly enjoying themselves. And, And so, um, and, and in the end, he becomes a father to his daughter-in-law uh, by way of doing things to help her enjoy life. He doesn't give them anything uh, other than the time to enjoy each other as a husband and a wife. And so to me, this is uh, a, a very, I mean, it's a lovely image of, of loving people in a community. And if I could just focus on an earlier scene, I mean, when he is, I believe in London, but if it's New York, correct me, guys. Uh, you know, the, the sort of signature episode there is, you know, he basically, you know, without, I, I guess he loses track of himself and eats half of the family's Christmas dinner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what struck me about that after I'd gotten to the end of the story and was sort of revisiting and thinking back on it, uh, is that, you know, his sort of highest, his highest human good if you will, uh, is the ability not to have to depend on anybody to make your living. You know, even if you're, if you get wiped out by a drought, at least it's your land that got wiped out by a drought. Uh, but in that episode in his younger life, uh, he is in a very straightforward sense, reduced to begging not to preserve his own life, but because he is afraid that the family that's been hospitable to him will not have as happy a Christmas as they would if he doesn't go beg and buy them a Christmas dinner. Uh, so, I mean, even, even as, you know, the hard work and the ownership of land and all of those things are sort of his vision of what the good life is ultimately in the way that he actually conducts himself, uh, not only there at the end as an old man, when it does him in, but earlier as a young man, uh, when it reduces him to begging, uh, it is always the benefit of the other that he seeks. And again, that's, that's what makes him such a magnetic character, I think. And, and a Christ-like character, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he, religion hardly enters into the story, but Cather is Episcopalian, apparently a faithful Episcopalian. And, and I mean, I can't help but read this as her telling us this is how a Christian behaves. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to that scene in in London, Nathan, briefly, is Mm -hmm. another, uh, I think, important element of that scene is that it's not just any rich people he goes to to ask for money. It's somebody who's a countryman, fellow countryman, fellow uh, Czech. And so Mm -hmm. and so there's like uh, there's like the bringing in more people into the community by by way of uh, his begging, not only. Uh, solves a problem for this family, but it makes a connection across uh, families, like from this rich mm-hmm. family to this very poor family. And they ultimately are the ones who fund his trip to New York. And allow right, him to, right. Yeah. I, uh, I cannot help but be moved by the relationship between Rosicki and Polly. Um, 
and, and here's my autobiographical reason why. Um, I got married in 2009, and we immediately moved to Florida so Victoria could go to graduate school, and we had no money. Like, she was making a graduate school stipend, and I could not get a job. I applied for, like, 100 jobs and couldn't get one. Um, and my father supported us financially, essentially, during that time. And, and my father, I, I, I pretty much think of him as Rosicki. He even has the, the, uh, the hay fork mustache. But, but, but he, he's like this, this just constant giving of himself to anybody who needs him. And I, I will never forget what he did for us that year when we were I mean, I don't think I've ever been lower. And, you know, the first year of marriage is tough for a lot of people, but it was it was really, really hard for us, just like it, it seems to be really, really hard for Rudolph and Polly. And this section at the end, excuse me, um, where where he, he has had his heart attack and he's laying in, in Polly's bed, it says, Polly sat still thinking hard. She had a sudden feeling that nobody in the world, not her mother, not Rudolph or anyone, really loved her as much as old Rosicky did. It perplexed her. She sat frowning and trying to puzzle it out. It was as if Rosicky had a special gift for loving people, something that was like an ear for music or an eye for color. It was quiet, unobtrusive. It was merely there. I don't want to speak for my wife. I certainly don't know if she would say that my father loves her more than anybody in the world, but I feel that when I'm around him. Uh, so this story is, is very, very personal to me and very, uh, it makes me very emotional. I was afraid you guys would hate it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I would basically be told that my emotions were wrong, but, uh, so, so <laughs> no, no. I mean, as long as you don't say you personally identify with Zemeckis's Beowulf, you're, you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if my father will listen to this, but if he did, he, he's probably embarrassed now because, uh, you know, he's not one for, displays of emotion as Rosicky wouldn't be either right he wouldn't uh he, he wouldn't like he wouldn't like to hear Polly say what what she's thinking there I don't think right right I I can't imagine I mean I don't know how hard a heart you have to be as a, a literary scholar to uh fault somebody for like identifying with somebody so sweet as Rosicky you know what I mean like as human beings I think that it's sort of your duty to do so I don't think there's anything at all embarrassing or wrong about that so so now that I've emoted <laughs> um the story ends with Dr. Burley visiting Rosicky's grave he, he has died after helping Polly and uh he reflects for a few paragraphs on the role of death in human life, uh, what conclusions does Cather come to here, and how should Christians in particular read this final section of the story? Well, first of all, I just want to read part of that last paragraph out loud because I mean it really is just a great uh, it's a great overlay of images, so here goes for the first time, it struck Dr. Ed that this was really a beautiful graveyard. He thought of city cemeteries, acres of shrubbery and heavy stone so arranged and lonely and unlike anything in the living world, cities of the dead indeed, cities of the forgotten, of the put away. But this was open and free, this little square of long grass, which the wind forever stirred, nothing but the sky overhead and the many-colored fields running on until they met that sky. And, you know, this is, you know, one of the things that we started with, right? I mean, this is city and country, uh, following the story all the way to the grave. 
not only is the city a lifeless place for the living, uh, but the country is actually a place where life persists for the dead. Uh, and, you know, if I, if I had to, you know, uh, put this story, you know, on a, a spectrum between Emily Dickinson and Dante as far as, you know, how prominent an actual geographic afterlife is, uh, you know, it's definitely on that side that views death as sort of a continuation of mortal existence, right? Um, you know, Rosicki is buried in a place that is very, very fitting for him. It's a place that's growing. It's a place that is unkempt. Uh, it's in a place that, you know, isn't worried with appearances. Uh, so it's definitely one of those things that, I mean, on a narrative level is very satisfying uh, because it simply continues what is good about Rosicki uh, even past the moment where he dies. Uh, you know, the the eventual fate of the family really isn't on anyone's mind there at the end. It really is just a, oh, now Rosicki finally gets to lie down and take that nap he probably should have taken. Danny, am I, am I missing anything there? No, I don't think so. I, I, I think that my impression of the death in this is that it, the story tries to make it have meaning. Like the, it tries to recover meaning in life and death. And so I, perhaps I'm uh, going to do a little too much of overreading here, but I see a couple of literary allusions uh, that I'd like to sort of talk about in that final section. Uh, the doctor again is sort of about to go to the graveyard. A sudden hush had fallen on his soul. Everything here seemed strangely moving and significant though signifying what he did not know. And I couldn't help but think of the famous speech from Macbeth, the sound and fury signifying nothing, right? And mm-hmm. so we're not sure <laughs> what the meaning of it is, but there's a sense that there's a meaning, right? And and, and, there's, and then later on, the, the part that you just read, I want to kind of reiterate, uh, but this was open and free, this little square of long grass which the wind forever stirred, nothing but the sky many colored fields running on until they met that sky. I immediately thought of Shelley um, and the life is a dome of many colored glass. Uh, was it stains the white radiance of eternity or something like that? But the, the many colored thing is on the ground, right? The sky overhead is the sky again. And, and so I feel like it's sort of a, it, it doesn't sort of treat life itself in the way that a romantic view as sort of some sort of a uh, figment <laughs> and, and something meaningless that, that is sort of in the way of true meaning, but it, it sort of tries to reverse that pole. And by making the kind of the many coloredness as not an illusion as it is sort of in, in, in Shelley's poem, but it is uh, like our experience here is a sort of variance. And so I feel like in those two, what I see is literary illusions and I, I could be me just over reading, but uh, I, I see a lot of, um, I see an attempt create and, 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 and think about meaning uh, in life and death. I was just thinking about the way that we talked about how all these binaries are able to be transcended because Rosicki holds them together and the family is able to survive because Rosicki holds it together. And so on one level you think, what's going to happen now that he's died? But, but the way she has laid him to rest means he is still there, that his, his presence is somehow still going to hold this family together. You don't get the sense, or I don't get the sense anyway, they're going to dissolve after this, that that he has not gone as far away as we might immediately think. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let's end this episode the way we often end these single-text episodes, by going around the horn and talking about some other aspect of the story that interests us. Nathan, um, we'll start with you, and when you're done, just wake Danny up and tell him it's his turn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that... uh... I, I come to this story, first of all, like I said, without any previous experience with Cather. Uh, and by the way, if uh, Dr. Ruth Lavender happens to be listening to this, and I actually did read Cather in your short story class, I do apologize. Uh, that was 1997, and I've forgotten. Uh, but what really struck me as, as someone who you know largely deals with older texts is just how just how neatly uh, Cather weaves together some of the things that would have been, you know, sort of new influences on modern urban life uh, with this story about, you know, love, like we were talking about, uh, as sort of one of those persistent realities. Uh, So, I mean, you do get a migration, you know, across four geographic locations. Uh, You get the notion that, you know, the automobile is still something new, uh, you get the the idea throughout the story that, you know, motion pictures are something that appeal to the young much more to, than to the old. Uh, you get the notion even that, you know, the reason that Rosicki knows to move out to Nebraska is because there are Czech newspapers in New York City that, you know, uh, relate to him, you know, that there are these islands of, you know, Czech people out in the plains that he can move to. So... It's one of those things where, you know, because I I spend a lot of my time in ancient medieval texts, uh, it was kind of fun following those very modern developments. Uh, And yet, you know, as you guys have said, I mean, it's just a very masterful, quiet, uh, unobtrusive weaving of those elements into a a, a nice narrative. Uh, Danny, what do you got? Well, I think that one of the reasons this story is so effective and, and so powerful is that it isn't just, I mean, the character himself like is uh, made powerful by, I think, the literary art behind it. So I just sort of want to point to an, an image uh, that, that repeats a motif in the story is, is snow. And I'd like to sort of talk a, just a bit about snow in the story. Uh, and I know that it, we've been talking about uh, kind of Rosicki's idea that there's a certain failure in modernity, uh, that uh, tradition is better. These sort of older traditions are better. And at one point, I believe it's the doctor, uh, somebody is talking about the snow is so deep that his car wouldn't make it through it. He had to use a wagon. And, and so that's sort of like a, a use of that motif of snow that illustrates that point that runs throughout the, the rest of the story and weaves it in with other ways of making that point. But also uh, there's one point when Rosicki is reflecting on the graveyard uh, as he's looking at it before he dies. Uh, this is long before he dies when he's sort of, it's in his mind. It's a shadow that it's creeping up in, in his mind. Um, and he says, it was a nice graveyard, Rosicki reflected, sort of snug and home-like, not cramped or mournful, a big sweep all around it. A man could lie down in the long grass and see the complete arch of the sky over him, hear the wagons go by. In summer, the mowing machine rattled right up to the fence, and it's so near home, and on down just a little bit. Uh, and it was a comfort to think that he would never have to go farther than the edge of his own hayfield. The snow falling over the barnyard and the graveyard seemed to draw things together like, and they were all old neighbors in the graveyard, most of them friends. There was nothing to feel awkward or embarrassed about. And so the snow 
in much the same way that Snow functions in Joyce's story, The Dead, uh, which falls upon the living and the dead, therefore uniting the experience and ma- making the dead still alive within the experience of the living. Uh, it w- functions exactly like that in the story. It's something that obliterates these distinctions um, between people's properties and their lives, which are bound up in uh, Rosicki's mind. I mean, they're not, they're not separable. And, and I feel like that's a really beautiful way uh, and I don't know that she's uh, alluding to Joyce there, but uh, I, that's a really beautiful way to kind of symbolically kind of bring everybody into this one community uh, in which Rosicki is a neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys for reading this story with me. Thank you um, for showing it to us. Listeners, if you think we're way off, if we've missed something, if you love Willa Cather and want to recommend more, please send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Nathan, you have the wheel for next week. What are we talking about? Yes, indeed. Uh, this week, as we are recording, uh, the actor and writer Harold Ramis just died this last week. Uh, and I hope coincidentally, uh, this is also the 30th anniversary of Ghostbusters, uh, for which he wrote and in which he acted. Uh, so we're going to do an episode next week on Ghostbusters. Did you guys see the cartoon of uh, the other Ghostbusters saying goodbye as Egon goes into the uh, yes, containment I, unit? I did see that, yes. I did as well. I think that would kind of suck for Egon, I have to say. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was well intended, but someone really didn't think that sucker through. <laughs> ah, well. Anyway, I hope you'll join us next week as we talk about the Ghostbusters. At least it'll be easy to pick a uh, theme music for that episode. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully Huey Lewis won't sue us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore, for Danny Anderson and the absent David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. I saw her standing on her front lawn Just a twirl her baton Me and her went for a and ten innocent people died from the town of Lincoln, Nebraska with a sawed off on my land through the bad lines of wine